Hello everyone, welcome back to Sabbath School from Home, this being our seventh episode as we uh, loosely, quite loosely, follow the Seventh-day Adventist lesson quarterly, uh, which this quarter is on uh, the three angels' messages, uh, three angels' messages being a subset of the six angels' messages in Revelation 14. Uh, very glad that you've decided to join us. My name's Cameron. G'day, Ken here. And I'm Lachlan, and I have a, a warning for the listeners before we get started. I've noticed this week on two separate occasions that I've been slightly more argumentative than I should have been, and I'm wondering whether it might be connected to a slightly unexplained skin itch that I have on just my upper arms and neck that's like a constant torment. And I'm wondering whether the constant torment of a vaguely itchy skin is causing me to be just that little bit more... Um, Irritable, perhaps, in conversation. So the reason for the warning yeah. is that if it comes across in this recording that I am taking an overly argumentative tone, you will have to forgive me and consider it to be the fault of itchy skin. Blame the itch. Fortunately, uh, Locke, the topic and the statements in this week's lesson are moderate and uh, and are going to you know pacify you to the extreme. <laughs> well, I'm very um, pleased to hear that. We're, we're, we'll see. Okay, well, we will see. Um I want to start by giving a little example of a paradigm shift. And it comes from my own field of expertise. Now, my experience has been, especially today um, in the teaching that I've done, is that not everyone is interested in mathematics. I, I don't know if this resonates with any of our listeners. Um, I will say this, though. This little fact that I'm about to share with you, I have found universally to be of interest in my classes. Most students think about it and they're like, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, and uh, even if they're not the mathematical top. So um, Euclid, a couple of thousand years ago, was trying really hard to invent the rules of geometry. And uh, when you're inventing the rules of geometry, he was looking, for instance, at parallel lines. And you draw two parallel lines on the page, and you draw another line that crosses them, and some of the angles match. They're the same. You know, and you can you can do geometry. I'm sure this is bringing back memories of people um, from school where you prove things about parallel lines. One of the things Euclid really wanted to prove was that parallel lines can't cross each other. And um, he was sure it had to be true. It, it was self-evidently true to him that if you draw two parallel lines, they, they don't cross. Um, but he couldn't prove it. And he felt that this was the sort of thing that you ought to be able to prove. If you understood about shapes and lengths and angles, which he did better than anyone else, um, you would think that it ought to be possible to prove that if two lines are parallel, they're going in the same direction, they must never cross. Uh, in the end, he had to just accept it as an axiom, which is a word mathematicians use for something that they hold to be true without proof. It's like the obvious thing. And all of maths is built on on axioms. Uh, they're sort of building blocks that mathematicians accept to be true without without proving that they're true. And this uh, Euclid was not too pleased about this. Um, it took 2,000 years for people to work out why Euclid couldn't prove it. And the reason is that parallel lines can cross. And I'll give you an example. Supposing that um, Alice and Bob are both standing at the equator, but one of them is in near New Guinea and one of them's in Africa. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the straight line joining them, joining Alice and Bob, is the equator. The equator is a straight... If they wanted to walk from Alice to Bob, the quickest way is to just walk in a straight line along the equator. Yeah. If they both turn at right angles so they're facing north, so you're imagining the world in front of you and you've got a finger in Africa and a finger in New Guinea, and you, Alice and Bob both head off due north, their paths are parallel. 
Mm-hmm. And they walk north, and they walk north in a straight line. And Alice gets to the North Pole, and Bob gets to the North Pole. Right. They meet Their paths at the North cross. Pole. Their paths cross. Even though they started parallel, and they are walking as straight as they can on the surface of a sphere. And um, it turns out that this thing about straight lines um, is only true if you're doing geometry on a flat page. If you do geometry on a Pringle, you, you might want to try this. Go buy a packet of Pringles and get, get them and draw some straight lines on the Pringles. And um, it turns out that on a Pringle, which is a different sort of curved surface, parallel lines diverge. They get further away from each other. <laughs> and so this, this, it turns out that most of the rules of geometry just don't work if you're not on flat space. So I teach students that the angles inside a triangle add up to 180, but it's not true. It's only true if the triangle is drawn on a flat page. Right. Um, so actually, isn't that? Was am I right that historically that's one of the one of the ways you could experimentally work out if you're on a, if your page is yeah, flat yeah, yeah. or not by just measuring drawing a yeah. triangle with three straight sides that meet at corners and then measuring the, yeah. each of the angles. If they don't add yes, 180, yes, yes. then you then you've proved that your page was not flat, that it was somehow curved, like yeah. maybe a sphere or a Pringle. Yeah, 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 exactly. And th- this was a massive uh, a paradigm shift for mathematicians because um, it didn't really prove any of their maths wrong, but it was just a totally different way of looking at the universe and opened up a whole number of perspectives of ways in which things could be true. And it, it turns out, for the those who are curious about the universe, that the, the universe, we do live in curved space. Um <laughs> And that's one of the things that Einstein sort of set in stone 120 years ago, that that we, we've we done experiments that have measured the fact that the space we live in... It turns out this weird maths fact, which is feels very useless, is actually really fundamental to the way the universe works. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we've had this... Mathematicians have this experience all the time where you say, well, this, well, this can't possibly be true. And then someone comes along a little bit later and says, well, actually, what if we thought of it in a different way? A classic example is negative numbers. If subtraction means taking away, if I have like five apples, you can take away three of them. If you want to, you can take away all five of them. But if I have five apples, you can't take away six of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if subtraction means take away, then fives take away six doesn't exist. And it didn't exist for most of human history until someone said, hey, here's a different way of thinking about it. And when they had a different way of thinking about it, suddenly negative numbers existed. Um, so I'd like to preface the discussion this week with that example, that there are sometimes ways of looking at things that make something impossible, and if you look at it differently, it's not impossible. And uh, there's a lot in this lesson that uh, we could talk about. There is one statement... Just before you get there, just before, I've, just noticed, I've just noticed Luke has joined us. Luke, welcome to Maths From Home, a podcast yes. about numbers and geometry. <laughs> I feel like I may have joined the wrong podcast, but I'm enjoying it all the same. No, Cam's, oh, no, no, Cam's Luke... just about to lead, the, lead us through the connection, I think. It's been a very fascinating yeah. account of, a, of an interesting histor- history of an idea in maths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this is a statement from the lesson. It's very important to um, worship the creator. That's what they're talking about. Especially now when most of the scientific and even the Christian world have accepted evolution, a teaching that strikes at the very heart of all things biblical and Christian. If evolution were true, our faith would of necessity be a lie. That's how stark the issues are. That's the quote from the lesson. Now, um, that is presented as a clear and precise logical deduction. Hmm. And I want to unpack that a little bit. So my question is, 
why or how does evolution strike at the very heart of all things biblical and Christian? Well, just, just before you do that, Cam, because I think we do need to talk about that, but it's worth pointing out that I believe it's called microevolution mm. over relatively short periods of time is an observed fact. So if evolution does strike at the heart of our faith, our faith is dead because evolution has killed it, because it exists. It is real. Yeah. What you're saying, Luke, is... What you're saying is, you know, you catch the cold this year, but you, you get it again next year. And the reason is that the cold is measurably, the, the cold virus is measurably slightly different. Well, quite. Um, and there's also um, all sorts of interesting things like epigenetics, mm. which is where if, for example, a parent is nutrition de- deprived at, at, at some point in their lives, you know, as, you know, through war or famine or something like that, the children will have different genetic traits as a result of their parents' experience. They will tend to be shorter and slimmer and require less calories. Hmm. Not because they are nutrition-deprived, because their parents were, the previous generation. So even within hmm. one generation, humans evolved to be more adapted to the environment that the previous generation experienced, right? So what hmm. they've done here in this statement... Um, is they've taken the word evolution and they've used it very incorrectly. I I suspect what they mean is the theory of evolution that purports that life formed from random chance and humans developed from common ancestors of apes over... Right, that's what they're referring to. But that's not what they've said in their statement. They've said something quite different and quite frankly stupid. Actually, this is a really important point because there are a whole lot of different things that are all ingredients of what they're referring to, but which all sensibly, if we're going to if we're going to consider the logical implications, Cam, we should actually be yeah. be careful to consider them in the nuance. So one element of this is speciation by natural selection. So this is this is going a step beyond what you've just described, Luke, and actually saying no, no, no. This process, if there are two populations that are in quite different environments, can lead over time to so much differentiation of the genetic expressions that it can literally cause cause two different species to to occur. So that's that's one element of it. There's another aspect of this whole discussion which has nothing to do with the with the variation in generation by generation genetic material and it's simply got to do with the the starting point altogether part of what the lesson is referring to i suspect is actually the 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 difficult idea of the of the origin of life itself um at a biochemical level and um all of these different things are parts of what they're referring to but they're all quite distinct and actually probably are sensibly considered slightly separately from each other yeah, especially because, and I'll, I'll throw an interesting example here, um, evolution is not synonymous with survival of the fittest. Hmm. So ev- I'll give you, for instance, a really interesting observed fact. Um, when cane toads were released in, a, in Australia and Queensland, they spread in all directions. Some of them, but the, but there's a coast on the east. Hmm. So they, they could go south or north or west, but not east. And some of those cane toads hung out in the local region, but some of them hopped west. And um, the cane toads that hopped west, when they came to breed, the only cane toads available for them to breed with were other cane toads who had hopped west. Yeah. Some of those went north, some of, them went, some of the children went north, some went south, some went east, some, some went west into new ground where cane toads had never been. Those cane toads 
the only cane toads they could breed with were ones who had chosen to hop west and whose parents had chosen to hop west. Mm. And then you get to the third generation. And of the third generation, some of them went north, some went south, some went east, some went, some went west. And they could only breed with cane toads who had chosen to hop west, whose parents had chosen to hop west, whose grandparents had chosen to hop west. This is nothing about, there's nothing that inherently about going west that makes you more fit to survive. Yep. So this is not survival of the fittest. But if you go out to the very front of the cane toads as they're moving across Australia, you, we're now looking at hundreds of generations. And the cane toads at the very front line are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren or grand... They're not children, are they? Grand tadpoles? Yeah. <laughs> um, of, for, for thousands of generations of cane toads, they are the children of cane toads that chose to hop west. And if you pick one of them up and carry it back to the east coast and let it loose, it will go west. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> this is why the cane toad... This is why the cane toad... Um, population is moving west at a faster pace than ever before. It's why it's accelerating. Because we're, by just the quirk of geography, we're selectively breeding cane toads who chose to hop west only with those who chose to hop west. <laughs> and and they just have like an inbuilt desire to just head west mm. that's inherited in their genetic material, which is so quirky. And none of that has anything to do with survival of the fittest. In point of fact, these cane toads are facing dingoes and other predators that have never met cane toads before, they're significantly more likely to be eaten mm. than cane toads, you know, back behind the front. Who've, so there's no, there's no survival of the fittest here. It's just a, it's just a totally different mechanism. Yeah. So, so when people talk about evolution, you know, that example with the cane toads fits in between the microevolution that happens with the COVID virus or the flu virus. Um, from year to year and there's different strains to this concept of speciation mm -hmm. what's happening with the cane toads is not speciation um, they're still they can still interbreed but it's sort of like a you know it's not a year to year thing it's over mm -hmm. it's it's the beginnings of some noticeable measurable change in in genetics um, that's that's quite quirky so um, so when we use the word evolution uh, you've got to be pretty careful. Most scientists, when they use the word evolution, do not refer to the origin of life at all. No. That's why I tried so, to point out the need yeah. to be really careful. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've got an interesting line of approach. Um, let's think of the ways, because there are, if if anyone chooses to become an evolutionist, and I'm talking about um, a long age of life with evolution, lots of mechanisms, um, natural selection, geographical selection, other all sorts of selection. But if we're going to accept that as a means of speciation and long age of life or whatever, then th there are there are issues that need to be grappled with. And I thought it might be worth just itemising some of those. Yeah. Um, so does anyone have one? I've got I've got one to start with, but I'll, I'll throw it open. Think... Uh, well, one of them one of them is um, you can't read the Genesis account literally. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it is that problem solved, Ken, by ignoring evolution? Uh, well, explain to not, me how it might not, not be. Not for me, Ken. <laughs> okay, read read Genesis two and compare it to Genesis one, and the sequence in which things happen is different. So very clearly in Genesis two, um, Adam is made, and what happens after Adam's created in Genesis two? And I'm just talking about. I, I know this can be explained away if you bend yourself over and you you know like a Monty Python, the, the, the Ministry of Silly Walks. If you can. Taught yourself enough, you can sort of squint and look at the right point of view 
to try and align Genesis 2 with Genesis 1, but I'm talking about just a simple, plain reading of the text. Mm. Um, in Genesis 2, what happens after Adam's created? Well, all the animals are created, aren't they? All the animals are created. And God and the garden is created. And then it specifically says Adam is created. And then God says he needs a helper. And then it says in verse 19, Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. But aren't the birds... But Adam... In Genesis, am I right? The birds and the... The birds of the sky and the animals of the of the field are actually different days, uh, but not in Genesis two. Mm. On a on a plain reading of the text. Well, the plain reading of the text in the NIV says, "Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the Ooh. field and all the birds of the air." So, that's what the NIV says. So it's okay. something that he had. All done. right, let's accept that. Let's it, it, he had done, but Eve is still not created. Yeah, I mean, and, and there are other there are other potential difficulties. Uh, that you can solve, but difficulties with uh, the st- the order of the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon and uh, the existence of days without them. Um, and you can do some contortions to get around them if you wish to. I mean, there's another... We've already discussed this. We don't need to. But the, the difficulty for a literal reading of the firmament, which has stars set in it and waters above it and birds flying through it is something very very difficult to you don't need an old universe all you need to do is look at the one we currently have right now and it doesn't seem to find very much resonance with the firmament as described do you know i'm reading genesis 2 more carefully now that i've i've launched into it. i should have done it before i started talking um yes it does say the lord had created but even that creates an internal tension just within genesis 2 so in Genesis 2, in verse 5, it says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had sprung up. And then in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. And then in verse 8, it says, Now God had planted a garden. Yeah. I suspect, I do, I do think we shouldn't get too caught up over whether God formed or had formed because uh, the translation I'm looking at just says formed in verse um, 19. Yeah. I, of Genesis 2? For, for me, the um, important point is the one that Locke just made, which is that um, even if you are to remove evolution, there are still lots of other problems reconciling observed reality with a literal reading of Genesis. And in fact, evolution is not incompatible with a literal reading of Genesis. If you take evolution to mean changes in species over generations, that has been happening for the last 6,000 years. And yes. and, yeah. other... and so it's not incompatible with Genesis uh, as a literal event 6,000 years ago anyway. So evolution is not the problem with Genesis. And Genesis uh, doesn't, uh, even a literal Genesis, doesn't create problems believing in the, the, the concept of evolution. Yeah. What you're saying, Luke, is that God didn't need to create every breed of dog. No. Because, well, and, because 6,000 years is more than enough because time. Because we to... know that many breeds of dogs were created in the last few hundred years. And they continue to be created today yeah. through selective breeding. Yeah. And it, it's just the, the idea that you could somehow deny that species change over time as generations pass on random combinations or you know semi-random combinations of traits to their offspring and mutations occur, yeah. all of which is unquestionable fact the idea the idea that you have to deny that you know all the concept of evolution to believe in a a literal genesis or or to have faith in god 
is just absolute nonsense. So there's another yeah. there's another problem, Cam, with with a, mm. a more evolutionary position that is in fact mentioned by the lesson this week, which is the connection between sin and death. And so they they point out that a like sin is a theological yeah. issue, death is a biological issue, and the New Testament has passages that link sin and death, and very famously in Romans, you know, the wages of sin is death. Um, through through one man Adam, sin was basically introduced to the world, and through one man Jesus, sin is overcome. That that kind of New Testament construction. Um, so I guess there's one issue there. Yeah, well, that's that, and that is, I think, the most compelling um, problem because it's a problem at the level of of what do things mean. But rather than it doesn't, mechanism. it still doesn't necessarily have anything to do with evolution. Because putting aside the idea, okay, let's assume then that before sin, everything lived eternally. It was still the intention of God that Adam and Eve would have children, and that their children would steward the earth. Yeah, that they would multiply. And, and yeah, 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 and that and that post sin, um, they were dying. And as soon as things start to die, and their children take over the, the resources available and then they die and their children take over. What you're saying, Luke, is that um, if Genesis predict, uh, presents a very sharp divide between pre- and post-fall, then um, you could accept evolution post-fall without really trying to work out what it meant to pre-fall. Well, no, well, quite. But I'm, what I'm also saying is that fundamentally ev- there's no reason why evolution couldn't exist pre-fall. You don't need death to have yeah. multiple generations you yes. only need yeah. birth. Yeah, but <clears throat> but if but but for for the construct of the of the the sin, you can't have death before sin. That that's that's the contention being made. Now, there's a couple of things which, here. But, no, if, but Luke's, which, which Luke's may, saying which that's may, fine. Which may be fine, but it's got nothing to do with evolution. They all live no, forever. The point <laughs> is, if... No, but the point is an evolutionary picture does have lots of death before humans. And so the the, well, the content the argument being made is this is one of the reasons why evolution is incompatible. You, you listeners can't ah. see my air quotes with my fingers. Yeah. Um, we could hear them. Look, yeah, look, but th- this unlocks the, the really curly problem because we say that not only is um, death linked to sin, but it's specifically human sin. Mm. Humans did something wrong and that brought trouble on, on creation. And so we say, well, there couldn't have been death before humans sinned because that wouldn't have been fair in some sense. But is it fair anyway that butterflies and caterpillars and dogs and lions and pigs should all die because we sinned? Like, I mean, is the problem solved by saying, oh, no, 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 no. It was all because humans mm. did something wrong. That's That solves the problem now because now sin's in the world. Everyone, everything's going to die. Trees, um, mm, mm. you know, um, caterpillars... Elephants, giraffes, they're all going to die because humans sinned. And to my mind, that's not any easier to reconcile than saying that there was death before human sin. So if you're willing to say, if you're willing to say, um, you know, death might be connected to sin in the human race, mm. but death in the animal kingdom is, is they're, not, they, they're not dying because they sinned, not even, not even under a literal reading of Genesis. Mm. Well, this is very closely connected to a, uh, an observation that, that I've made in the past, which is one other issue that has been at times 
leveled against an evolutionary picture is just the vast amounts of death and suffering. You know, if you do have millions and millions of years with generations and generations and generations, then by necessity, in, in our world at least as it is, by necessity you've got lots and lots and lots of death. And so the argument is, would how can God, who is a loving God, be comfortable with so much death and suffering? And that same statement is true if you just look in the world right now today. I mean, do what I did two weeks ago and accidentally go down a rabbit hole and read about the Rwandan genocide and come away wondering to yourself, how can a God who is love um, be content with so much death and suffering? The point that I'm making well, is there is so much death and suffering that God, it seems, puts up with. Or, In other words, the problem of theodicy is the problem of theodicy. Why do bad things happen? You yes. still have to solve that. You the, still have to. You're right. The, the quantity of suffering is not... Uh, the issue uh, even a small amount of unjust suffering is mm -hmm. raises mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. um and I, I note look just so that i'm understanding when you're talking about like you said just now problem with evolution you're talking about the theological concept of guided evolution so the idea that life started god started life a long time ago and then has guided it to its present state and therefore god is responsible for all the suffering that has been incurred over that incredibly extended period of time yeah i mean i guess i guess to be fair we're probably not in this conversation we're probably not not actually really discussing the a totally atheistic naturalistic totally devoid of god picture of things because the context that we're sort of discussing is um uh, the the range of different christian pictures that are held and the lesson alluded to this you know scientists and it says many christians uh, have whatever, succumbed to evolution. On this prob problem of suffering, look, um, so this idea that saying, well, evolution has to be wrong because it suggests that God is in some sense comfortable with the amount of suffering in the world. We have to realise that the stories we have of God's direct intervention in the Bible are sparse. Mm. You know, Christ healed everyone he came in contact with who was sick for three years. Mm. What about someone who was sick the year before he started his ministry? Or... Or in the wrong postcode, who lived just a bit outside the beat of his travels. And Christ acknowledges this when he's talking about um, when he wasn't accepted in his hometown. He points out to all these, the people who are after him. He says, oh, a prophet's never accepted in his own town. Don't you remember that um, there were many widows in Israel hmm. in the days of Elijah? Yeah. There were widows everywhere. And, and when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months without rain. In other words, there were heaps of people doing it tough. And then he makes the provocative statement to them and says, yeah, but Elijah wasn't sent to any of the Israelite widows. He was sent somewhere else. Yeah. And if, if you say, I'm not happy with God, you know, featuring as part of his plan pain and suffering, why was Elijah not sent to all the widows? Yeah. Well... Why? Why wasn't he on a beat of just going around he, to all the he, widows? Like there's, even, there's something even more fundamental than that, Cam. Um, why did he wipe the world out with a flood? Why did he order the Israelites to kill all the women of children of all those tribes, etc., etc.? Uh, yeah. We have talked about this on the, on the podcast many times before, and I will yeah. I will control myself. To <laughs> I don't think we got sidetracked into theodicies. I well, think yeah, but just the the, the problem. But it is a problem that is not. We can recognise that it is pain. a problem not solved yeah. by yeah. accepting the creation account. Yeah. It's it's not yeah. solved uh, by anything in particular to yeah. do with creation. Yeah, I'd just like to say that his his strategy, Luke, as they enter the promised land, where he goes out, tells them to wipe them all out, is very in keeping with a with a um, 
uh, a concept of the survival of the fittest in terms of ideologies. So all these people with the ideologies that are not right, just go and kill them all so that the correct ideology and the correct belief will endure and gradually overtake in the, in, you know, in the world because all the people who believe the wrong things will be dead. Mm. And, it wasn't and to be a I very say, effective strategy. No, <laughs> but I'd just like to point out... today, I know. Yes, that's, I was going to say, Christians have done this. Mm. Because we're in the right and because we've got freedom and democracy or because we've got the truth or in the Holy Crusades because we are, we're the Christians and these people are the heretics, we are then justified in just going and, and wiping them out. Mm. Um, that when you employ that, you are thinking in an evolutionary way, but in terms of ideologies and belief and faith, um, instead of sort of biologically. But let's let's get back on on topic. What about time? One of the problems with um, with accepting any form of evolution as a process that is at least partly responsible for speciation is that you know for viruses that replicate super rapidly, you don't need much time for them to evolve because um, they're they're replicating so quickly. But if you're, you know, a blue whale um, or an elephant um, uh, where it's small numbers of offspring over a fairly long life, you need you need quite a fair bit of time for the evolutionary process to work. So um, when it says, when the lesson says that, that evolution is completely at odds, I'm not quoting it with the right phrase, but um, when it says that it, uh, evolution strikes at the very heart of all things biblical and Christian, Part of that must surely be just to the concept of, of long ages. Yes, I think so. I wonder how that plays into the concept of a soon return. I had an excellent sermon by uh, Pastor George Knight recently on that. Um, mm. What did he say? Well, uh, it, it would take too long to recount the entire thing uh, on, on this podcast, but listeners who may be familiar with him or, or his books probably have some idea of what he said. Um, if, if I can summarize, it was essentially something along the lines of uh, the Bible makes it very clear that nobody knows the day or the hour except the Father. Um, and that the point is not to try and work out when the day or the hour is, but rather to act as though it will be soon. And if, you know, Jesus had said to the disciples, I will return in 2023 AD um, around about July-ish, they wouldn't have done anything. They would not have been yeah. motivated to act the way that they did when they believed mm. that he was going to come back while they were still alive or, or shortly after they were persecuted so to death. This is a train of thought we need to come back to. Well, we, we need to probably go then. I, I was about to say, um, noticing the time, I was about to say, this is, this is precisely what we need to ponder, I think, to close, if, if, if we can, which is, the, inst the admonition in the first angel's message in Revelation 14 is to worship him who made the heavens, the earth. In other words, to worship the creator. And it seems to me that the lesson has taken that to mean we must accept a particular model of understanding how he created. And I, I am struggling quite to see how that is synonymous with worshipping a creator. Well, let's put it this way. If worship yeah. required perfect understanding... Nothing and nobody would ever be worshipped anywhere, ever. Yeah, yeah. but that's that's uh, setting up a straw man, well, in a sense. Well, um, I, I mean, if, the lesson set the straw man up. I merely observed yeah, it. Yeah. Um, we worship uh, a, a, an ineffable God. Nobody denies that in Christianity. There are things we don't understand. We can worship without understanding. We can worship while having the wrong doctrine. I'm not saying we should intentionally do it, but we can and we probably are. 
all of us. Well, this is the Adventist church, which which was born out of a great disappointment, is surely a testament to this. You know, there, there were people who were wrong in 1844. And we, we are very proud about, you know, how sincere they were and, and that their worship was in some sense pleasing to God or accepted to God, but they weren't correct. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called the great disappointment. So, so and, and the people, you know, this is the doctrine that Paul says, you know, um, you know, the thing that people briefly, is it Paul who wrote Hebrews? Or is the author unknown? Anyway, but, in, you know, the thing that people sort of half had a vague notion of in the Old Testament, a very inadequate understanding of, has actually happened now with mm. Christ. So there's this idea that, you know, back then people were worshipped, they were a bit in the dark, really, when they were worshipping God. They weren't, they weren't really aware of what's going on. Um, uh, I am also reminded of the parable of the two sons, um, one of whom said to his father, yeah, 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 I'll go out, I'll do the job for you, but stayed at home. And the other son, he said, no, I'm not going to go and help you. I don't want to work out in the fields. And then afterwards thought better of it and actually went and did it. Mm. And and Christ asked the people, listen, which, which of these two was the true son? Um, so it seems to me that if someone lives a life of worship by respecting the vulnerable, by being kind and compassionate, by being honest, by caring for God's creation, by keeping an active lookout for where God is working in the world and joining in, then exactly whether they think the world is 6,000 years or 6,001 years or 6,006 years or 10,000 or 10 million years old uh, may not matter quite so much. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, to be flippant, whether instead of worshipping the creator, it's possible to fall into the trap of worshipping creation as a concept. Hmm. One of the things that we haven't discussed is the assumption, and I hesitate to raise it given the time, because I think it's actually one of the more fruitful grounds for discussion, <laughs> um, uh, is the assumption that uh, a random slash chance process is inherently and necessarily purposeless. So to treat the word chance as effectively an antonym for purpose, mm. uh, to treat the word random as incompatible with meaning. Um, and uh, again, I'm no mathematician uh, or computer scientist, but I did particularly enjoy uh, a book that my software engineer son gave to me. Uh, he didn't, in fact, give it to me. He lent it to me, but I still haven't returned it to him. <laughs> um, by Donald Nuth. Mm. Um, things a computer scientist rarely talks about. Um, and indeed, one of his... And this was a series of lectures uh, that he gave um, at one of the at MIT um, uh, on things a computer scientist rarely talks about. One of which was randomization and religion. And he described there a number of processes um, in that lecture in which um, randomization is in fact uh, the most efficient way of solving many problems, um, uh, that trial and error will produce a result uh, more quickly uh, than the effort it would take to create an algorithm uh, to solve the same problem. Uh, so that if you've got the perp a particular purpose, you can effect that purpose um, uh, efficiently through a random uh, through a process of random selection. Uh, now. Um, uh, it strikes me that it would that a God who had a purpose of love 
in respect of which free will uh, on the part of the created entity um, was an inherent and essential component uh, that such a uh, an environment would inevitably have to involve um, a degree of um, chance uh, and uh, randomness. Uh, and that is not inconsistent uh, with love. Indeed, it is an essential component of love. The mere fact of the existence of the choice means that there's a zero or a one. Um, um, and that that uh, is not uh, predetermined. Um, and I don't want to get into then discussions about predestination and the like, but um, uh, and that that is and that that um, uh, randomness is would go down to the very level of the material in which those entities were to come into existence. It would not be surprising either, uh, and we see that when in areas that you gentlemen are much more expert in than me. Um, uh, But we also see in those areas the existence of relationships, uh, relationships that go down to a material level and and the importance of relationships at that level and how as we move up through, um, uh, if I can call it the organisation of the various entities and their um, properties, uh, that those relationships continue to be important, notwithstanding that the very substance in which they, um, in which relationships exist, in which love exists, in which human interaction occurs, the very materials on which it's based um, uh, have a random element to them. Uh, that doesn't mean there's no purpose to it. Uh, indeed, the purpose is love, and that's made very clear. Um, love is not incompatible with chance and randomness. No, and uh, what you're saying, Ken, is accepting a world where some things are indeterminate, some things are not... The, the, where things, the state of the universe in the future is not completely controlled by its state today. Mm. Um, accepting that uh, it makes it much easier to argue for free will. Mm. It, it, so, it remi- you know, it's a really, really topic to explore and it reminds me of discussions that we've had before about the idea of god's plan and god being a you know a master strategist and the idea which i think is quite um unlikely that god's plan means everything is is set in stone and happens exactly a certain way and no other way as opposed to god simply being so good infinitely good at planning and strategy, that he can just adapt to anything which happens and work it into his plan. Hmm. That's a that's a really good note, Luke. I think on which to finish. Um, I would only say that um, uh, my faith. I do not feel that my faith would be a lie if someone were to prove to me, without a shadow of a doubt, that evolution was a significant part of the way things have turned out on Earth. So. Uh, my faith, as I understand it, would not be threatened by that. Uh, what I read in the lesson, then, is that according to the tenets of the lesson, my faith, my faith is not um, real. It's not real or valid, um, and I'm, I'm not sure. So uh, about that, um, 
And I'm not sure what purpose is served by telling people your faith must be threatened by this idea. If you are wrong, if you tell people your faith must be threatened by um, the consumption of Vegemite, it's only Marmite, sanitarium brand. Um, if, if you tell people their faith must be threatened by something mm. and you are not in fact correct, then, then you have unnecessarily caused people to question their faith. Yeah. Yeah. And it just seems to me that that's, that's a, a direction that would require some element of caution. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about the age of the universe, but I do know about the age or the length of time of this podcast, and it's too long. To which I want to finish with this thought, because I want to pick up on Lachlan's point, that whatever the methodology might be, I hope I'm not unfairly summarising your point, Lachlan, uh, whatever the how might be of the creation, the instruction is to worship the creator. Um, and I think that is the fundamental point of that message of that first angel. Um, and uh, as to that, I was recently sent this quote uh, by a very good friend of mine from Eugene Peterson, the um, author, if that's the proper title, of the message. Worship is the time and place that we assign for deliberate attentiveness to God, not because he is confined to time and place, but because our self-importance is so insidiously relentless that if we don't deliberately interrupt ourselves regularly, we have no chance of attending to him at all at other times and in other places. Amen. Let us turn our attentiveness to God in this time and in this place. Ken, that's fantastic. Um, to you, our dear listener, uh, please uh, continue being part of our community and um you know, the issues that we've talked about are issues that, as a church, um, we're all trying to address. So uh, we're glad um, to be a, a small part of a much bigger community of people trying to find God and to worship him. Uh, if you have any thoughts, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and feel free to share this uh, podcast with anyone who you feel would benefit.